It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. As a part of our Catching Up With series, today we reconnect with three-time Grammy-nominated pianist, composer, and audiophile David Chesky, who is also the founder of the Chesky Records label. He is noted and respected for his fresh and unique approach to musical composition, which spans the jazz and classical genres. His latest project and album is called The Great European Songbook. It's a marvelous release, which transforms classical European standards from Bach to Beethoven into the jazz idiom. David, welcome back to All That's Jazz. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to once again visit with you. And let me start out by describing this release, the Great European Songbook, uh, with a description that was noted as saying that this album is a deconstruction of the classical repertoire's most celebrated melodies to deliver virtuosic jazz performances. Tell me about that. So this is an offshoot of COVID. When I was home during COVID, I had this series I'm bored out of my mind. I was just getting bored. So I, you know, I work in both fields. I write a lot of classical symphonic works and I was home playing and it was just kind of a game to take classical music and turn it into jazz. And people really liked it. So I decided, you know, let's do it for real. And I talked to Peter uh, Washington and Billy Drummond, my rhythm section. I said, guys, let's just go do this. So I wrote up these arrangements and I reharmonized the songs. And I think they work great in the jazz idiom. Well, it, it really is quite stunning. And, and listening to it, it, it very clearly is within the jazz idiom. But at the same time, you get to recognize those European classics, uh, you know, the kind of things that are easily identified and you recognize the melody. And, it, you know, it's almost like one of those things where you can hum along with it because you know it. Yeah, well, look, in jazz, people take jazz tunes, My Funny Valentine, things like that, and we improvise over it. So why not just improvise over these classical songs? And let me tell you a few things here. First of all, Bach, to me, is jazz. I mean, you look at this music, and it's got counterpoint. I mean, he was the jazz guy of his age. Secondly, the cat improvised all day. It was mostly improvised music. So it had all the elements, the bass counterpoint line. I mean, all he was missing was a drummer with a trap set, you know. But it really works, and it really nicely falls into this type of music. Jazz and Bach, to me, are kind of the same thing. Tell me, first off, uh, how you chose the pieces that you did for this particular album. I pulled out my Bach book. 
I started playing, played all of them. So this one kind of works. This one kind of doesn't work. And it just kind of felt right, you know. Some of them didn't really lay so well. And some just, they just want to be there. You know, it just felt right, you know. And that's kind of how I did it. Just pulled out all the real music. And then I said, can I reharmonize it without ruining the song, you know. Because the harmonic language was totally different back then. So w- was this a matter of finding those particular songs, melodies, etc., that people would quickly identify with or recognize? No, it was more of a matter of what felt good playing. I mean, you know, some of them are a little obscure. I mean, some of these Bach fugues, most people don't know, but they just felt good, you know? You know, most people are not going to know the the second fugue, but it just sounds swinging. And and they do, and the the flavor that you put on them is absolutely amazing, and and it's so much fun to to go through this album. So let me ask you, David, is this a... uh, a project where your goal would be to draw the classical aficionado into jazz or the reverse of getting jazz fans connected to classical music? That's a great question. You know, I don't know the answer. I was at a classical meeting last night and I was explaining to people and they're very open to it. I think it's something that crosses over into both genres. I think it'll, the jazz audience will enjoy it and the classical audience this that doesn't like jazz, it's a way for them to put their toe in the water and say, hey, this is kind of cool. I find out so far just getting their early records out to people that the classical people really dig it because all of a sudden, wow, this is music they can identify. You know, if we did a jazz record and played standards, you know, a lot of the classical people don't connect to those songs. But now they hear this and they say, oh my God, I know this song. And they connect to it. Just like when, you know, somebody plays My Funny Valentine or My Romance, people know the tune, they connect to it right away and they get when you blow on it. So it's the same thing. As I started listening to this release, I, I, it prompted me to go over and hear a symphonic representation of that music because I wanted to see the comparison or see what you drew from the classical piece and put it into jazz. Here's the thing. I took the standard melody of the classical piece and then I reharmonized it with jazz harmony. That's what works. And really what makes it work is Billy Drummond and Peter Washington. I mean, you know, that's just like getting into a Ferrari. And uh, you could play, you know, you could play scales with those guys. It's going to sound good. Well, and you chose well in in, uh, presenting this uh, release because it is a trio based. You on piano, Billy Drummond, of course, on uh, the drums and Peter Washington on bass. And you couldn't have chosen two better guys to uh, engage with. And, of course, uh, these are two gentlemen that you've worked uh, with in the past as well. Yeah, they're part of my other band, the Jazz and the Harmonic Rhythm Section. And that has Javon Jackson in there as well and Jeremy Pelt. But, you know, I've known these guys for years. I mean, I go back so far with them. And they're also audiophiles as well. You know, Billy and Peter have a passion for sound, which is kind of fun. So everybody in the band is kind of on the same wavelength. Let's get the best sound. Let's make it sound really good and all that stuff. We all enjoy listening back to really nice stereo systems. We enjoy listening to good quality recordings and 
those guys put the extra time in saying, let's make it really sound good. Well, and obviously uh, the sound is important not only to them, but to you specifically. I mean, this is really what you're noted for and what you're all about in terms of being a purist, uh, an audiophile in, in the strongest sense of that word. Even uh, when it comes to Chesky Records and things that are on that label, the sound is the heart and the soul of everything that you produce. Yes, we are very minimal. Our philosophy is simple is better. I mean, look, it's not to negate some people want to go in and use 50, 60 tracks. It's sort of like an Italian versus a French restaurant versus a hamburger place. It's what you like. But my thing when I started was being very zen. Let's do it as simple as we can, capture real musicians in a real room. It's about the interplay with the musicians. I want to get everything out of the way and clean the glass and make it so transparent so you can just hear it. Well, when you listen to a lot of your work, I mean, you can have that experience because it truly sounds like it's up close and personal or you're engaged or involved in where this performance is taking place and and you get that better feel and sense of what the goal here is and that's to enhance the sound experience for the listener. Yes, because look, let's just take an example. Take Sonny Rollins. He spent his entire life developing his tone. It's his sound. So, you know, the tone and the sound is a big part of the music. You know, we, we always think it's the notes, the harmony, but it's the tone. And the more we can do to capture that tone and make it as beautiful as we can, it makes the poetry of what he's doing coming across better. When you hear him live, it's a rich, burnish sound. And the idea is not to make it sound thin and bright. It's to capture that because when you hear that tone, physically something happens to you. It, it moves you. Uh, but the tone is the poetry of the music. The notes and the harmony is the intellectual part, but the tone is the passion. You just say, wow, what a sound. And even guitar guys, you know, they spend years with the tubes and the amplifiers fiddling around to get their sound, right? Everybody's got their sound, you know. You listen to uh, Hubert Laws. He's got a sound, you know, and that's important. When you were mixing this project and putting it together, it's my understanding that this was mixed through what's called your proprietary two-channel, 3D, mega-dimensional sound. What is that? Here's the thing. I also work in technology. I've been working for years developing. When you have two speakers in front of you and you sit in the equilateral triangle, you hear the speakers coming, the music coming from the speakers. But now I can push it way past the speakers, give it height. So when you hear it, it's really big and it sounds like it's more immersive, more enveloping. The band is in front of you. It's just bringing you closer to, instead of coming out of two little speakers, we kind of blow it up without destroying it. So you just feel more immersive. And that's all it is, is a connection. If you're listening in the background, does it matter? Not at all. But if you set up your stereo right and you say, you know something, I live uh, in, let's say, Idaho and I have a good stereo and I want to be in the vanguard, we could put you there. The idea is how can we bring you closer and make the experience better? An example would be this. I can watch Star Wars on my iPhone, but uh, it's not the same experience as watching it in an IMAX movie. So that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to enhance the experience of listening to jazz. 
Well, you know, David, when you look at uh, the the words 3D uh, dimensional sound, to me, or at least I would think a lot of people, 3D is something that you can only experience visually by putting on a pair of glasses. Is there something you need to put on to hear 3D sound? Not a thing. Not a thing. Our system is geared just to work on two channels. You don't have to buy anything. You just hit play. But the idea is the better your stereo setup, the better it's going to sound. You know, if you have your stereo piled on top of the refrigerator, all bets are off. But if you set it up nice in the middle of your room, you know, who people who really want to engage in music attentively, it's better. You know, we have two types of listeners. We have background listeners, people who want to listen while they're having dinner and cooking. That's okay. But then we have attentive listeners. Somebody says, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm putting my phone. I'm putting everything down. I'm going to sit in the chair and maybe have a glass of wine. And I'm going to hit play for 45 minutes. I'm going to sit in front of that hi-fi and I'm going to go to a concert. And that's who we're making this for. Those people will benefit. And then we make that experience better. If you don't mind, I'd like to get into the album itself, the great European songbook, and go through some of the uh, tracks here and have you describe for us uh, what some of the things are that you were trying to achieve and the goals intended. For example, in in the beginning, you start out with the uh, second prelude from Bach. It has a sound that is just amazing uh, to me. And frankly, I, I think even when it starts out, you know exactly that you're already in the jazz idiom. Yes, but it's interesting because that prelude is usually done fast. And I said, okay, let's reinvent it. And I wanted to make it very lyrical. it down and harmonizing it all of a sudden it takes it into this very lyrical place that is kind of new and it puts a whole new light on the piece but at the same time it i think demonstrates a respect for the original composition oh yes but you know jazz look jazz is jazz when you do jazz you don't do anything original the thing is this look if you have 20 orchestras playing beethoven's fifth symphony it's pretty much going to be the same within 5%. Okay, you do it a little louder, a little faster, a little slower, etc. But if you have 20 guys playing My Romance, you're going to get 20 completely different versions. It's just the idiom. So when the, any jazz musician takes a song, whether it's Bach, Stravinsky, or My Romance, their art form is taking it and doing their thing to it. It's accepted. It's not bastardizing it. Because that's the art form. The art form is to take this thing as a structure, as a launching point, and then developing it into your own thing. Well, one of the pieces you start 
getting into is the uh, Bach Fugue Number no. 2, and this thing really swings. I mean, it's a really swinging version of that particular piece of music. Uh, yes. Yeah, and now we picked that up. We did it faster. We swung it, and we inverted that, too. took it and we just did our thing with it well and, and you certainly do your thing on a number of things one of them that i found very interesting was blue danube uh the uh the work of johann strauss and you turned it into a samba exactly that's a waltz so i sat there playing it and said this is kind of nice and it just kind of evolved into this samba or samba, I believe the Chopin tune on there. and I think fair least the Beethoven.
and and that was intentional <clears throat> to to put this Latin spin on these particular uh, pieces. Yeah, it's whatever felt right. You know, I would play say, well, it doesn't work as a swing, doesn't work as a waltz, but it works really nice as a bassa, a samba. You know, jazz is like a river. It's going to go where it wants to go. I'm just kind of along for the ride. You know, it just has this thing where it just wants to go this way. And it's it's got to go that way. So some of your Brazilian treatment uh, or Latin treatment of uh, some of these pieces uh, was it influenced or heavily encouraged by your wife because she is Brazilian to say, hey, David, uh, you really need to do this with that piece? Unfortunately not. Um, it just comes out that way, you know. Maybe my wife now likes it better, but it just kind of wants to go that way. The music's going to take you where it wants to go. And another piece that you did was uh, Box Prelude Number 1, and that's uh, very bluesy in many, many uh, respects. Yeah. Well, you know, the original one is very beautiful and uh, poetic, and I just said, let's take it into that bluesy, dark kind of cool place. difficult to influence both Peter and Billy to say here's what I'm really after or were they easily caught into the moment or the inspiration that you had for a lot of the pieces the level that Billy and Peter operate on takes them a microsecond they get it you don't have to say a thing they just get it say works in one second you know what we could do all first takes these guys are just great artists they get it they're brilliant they add bring so much to it you know um, peter's counter melodies are just wonderful you know instead of having the bach bass line peter adds this beautiful counterpoint bass line that just works so well it just locks in there and then billy you know he can take the alphabet and they could swing so when you have these players on your team, it makes it a lot easier. There's no, there's no fighting. Say, do this, do this. Like, do, it just goes. It's really easy. It's sort of like oh, turning the TV on with a remote. It just works. It's that easy. Well, you know, when you listen to some of the pieces, you hear the brilliance of, of Billy and Peter. And it, it's almost like they had done these pieces of music a thousand times before but like you said they obviously adapt very quickly and move right into it and make it their own yes that's the art of jazz the art of jazz is this when you take a symphonic piece if i'm going to learn a Rachmaninoff piano concerto i put four months aside and i learn it every day and i memorize it memorize it memorize it a jazz musician picks it up and doesn't have to do it he only needs the 25 years before that 
to be able to do that. So, you know, it takes like 20 years to get to that level. And then you get to that level and then you're at the part where you can just extemporaneously improvise. So tell me about the uh, the Bach cantata. Uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly, the Wachet Auf. Uh, yes. That's an homage to uh, the players of the West Coast cool approach to music. And readily identifiable, for example, would be the music of Vince Garaldi. And when I started listening to that piece, that I immediately heard Garaldi. That was my little homage to Vince. And look, I grew up listening to Vince, the Charlie Brown series. I mean, who hasn't? And it just said I wanted to do it, and it just fit in that genre so well. How hard was it putting all of this together? Did did you do a lot of uh, simple one takes, or was there a, a great deal of effort behind a number of the tracks? We did two takes. That's it. After a while, then it gets to be repetitive. But on my end, I had to learn the pieces. That took a while to get it into my fingers because I had to learn first as a classical piece. And then once I had it in my fingers, you know, it's not, look, with some of these Bach things, like the prelude number six, I mean, that's just pages and pages and pages and pages of 16th notes. I mean, you got to learn it. I mean, if you play a 12-bar blues or a standard, you know, you're dealing with you know, 36 measures of easy reading. But, you know, just to read all this music, it's a pain. You have to learn it. You got to put the, the the hours in. And then once you learn it, then you can improvise on it. But you can't improvise any on anything unless you really have it in your fingers. And this just took a little more time to get up to speed. Was a lot of the mm-hmm. approach to this uh, a focus on melody? Or were there other elements of uh, these composers' pieces that you tried to incorporate? Well, I think this is melody because everything else, we do the the heavy lifting in jazz. I took the melody, I put in my own harmony, put in my own counterpoint. Billy added his thing, Peter added theirs. So it's basically taking the melodies. Is there one particular piece, David, that you are particularly either drawn to or proud of that's on this release, the Great European Songbook? No. But I will say the hardest were the fugues and the preludes to learn. So I'm proud that I actually sat there and practiced it, you know, and did it in one take. I have to say I was like amazed. Like I had put my glasses on and I look at all these little dots. And uh, I don't have the music in front of me, but it's a lot of dots. So when you were putting this all together, what was the hope for being a takeaway for listeners for this album? No, just to enjoy it. You know, music, look, at the end of the day, music is art and it's entertainment. People have a tough day, whatever they do, 
my job is you come home, you hit play, you sit there for 45 minutes and you can enjoy your life. You're enriched with art. You feel good. It just adds to the positivity of the day. That's what any artist or musician does. We just want to make the world a little more palatable and nicer place to be in. I know you're heavily involved in youth education when it comes to music. Would this be an easy entree, would you say, to involve or engage young people to take up an approach to classical music by giving them this jazz version first and say, now go back and listen to Bach original fugue? Well, that's another discussion for a whole other show, but I believe this. I believe that every kid in this country, if they know who General George Custer is, should know who Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, and Dizzy is. I think jazz education should be a compulsory uh, thing taught in school. Jazz is not a commodity. It's our own indigenous art form, and we need to preserve it. And the only way to preserve it is to teach it to people. Look, I know right now uh, a lot of kids are going to rap, rock and roll, pop, and that's cool, but you still have to know this because if kids are not exposed to this, how are they going to keep it going? And let's say a thousand kids are exposed to jazz. If a hundred keep it going, that's enough. But what happens is this country invented jazz and we leave it to the Japanese and the Europeans to support it now and we've turned our back on it. And that to me is almost criminal. I mean, I don't even get it, especially in the urban areas. I mean, listen. If you were black and you were an intellectual in the 1960s, the way you expressed yourself was jazz. This is a great art form. It's an intellectual art form. And I'll tell you something. From somebody who writes symphonies and operas and ballets, go sit on a stage and try to play over giant steps when the quarter note equals 160. Try that. It's genius. It's brilliance. There's a brilliance there. And for some reason... I don't know if it's because of our lack of self-esteem. We think if Mozart does it, then it has to be preserved in its art, blah, blah, blah. But if Coltrane does it, uh, we don't have to study it. I don't agree with that. We need our youth to learn this. It should. It's not my job. I think it's the job of the public school systems to keep this going. Because otherwise, you know, where, do you get, where are they going to be exposed to it? And then, look, another thing is back in the 50s and 60s, Miles Davis, Dave Brubeck, they played on channel cbs it was mainstream tv where is a young kid going to even know about this today you know unless they bump into it on the internet they're not going to see it on tv you're not going to see it on the five thousand cable channels there's nowhere to see this you know for some reason i guess because of uh capitalism you know it's all about money but remember this art is not a commodity it's our culture and we need to preserve it and if you go to italy Every kid knows all the Verdi operas. They know the songs. They may not want to do them, but they're learned. It's their culture. And we need to preserve this culture. Well said. And it needs to flourish and continue, as I'm sure it will, uh, with the work of people like yourself and others that are involved in education. This particular release is through the Audiophile Society. Tell me about that. What does that mean? Well, it's a little sub-label I made just to experiment with the 3D audio. So all the 3D audio, instead of coming out of Chesco, will be the, the Audio File Society. Because it's, a, it's like a little workshop 
you know, I'm doing a lot of experimental things. So if I mess up, it's it's on the side. So I'm developing this technology and it's just my workshop. So the Audiophile Society is two things. It's 3D audio for speakers. And if you download it from the website, we have a headphone mix. So for people who want to listen to headphones, it's there's 3D on headphones as well. Because, you know, headphones and speaker mixes are done on the same time in the studio. It's just one thing. You listen to the record. But headphones work entirely different than speakers. So there should be two mixes. And that's what we're trying to understand and do and learn. So are you going to take this release uh, and hit the road, so to speak, with Peter and Billy and perform this uh, so that people can appreciate this album? I'm hoping to. I have to talk to some agents. We'll be at Jazz and Lincoln Center next month. So, wait, we'll be there in December. Mm-hmm. Look, it's the first time I'm playing since COVID. You know, those guys play more, but, you know, it's just hard to get a gig. So I would like to take it and absolutely play it. I mean, this is fun. Anything coming up next that you might want to give us a little sneak preview uh, about or a project that's on your horizon right now? Well, I did a solo piano record. That'll be out in the spring. I'm going to experiment with some more electronics because I think that's fun. It's fun to try a different palette. Uh, Oh, I just wrote a nice song, a piece for Javon Jackson. It's tenor sax Mm -hmm. and orchestra. It's called Harlem Landscapes, and it's dedicated to Sonny Rollins. And Javon uh, is going to play with orchestras. He just has the music now. We're hoping to record it, and then he'll hit the road with that. That was fun. So how can some of our listeners hear more about you and all the works that you're involved with? Go to my website, davidchesky.com, or if you want to see about the new label, theaudiophilesociety.com, or Chesky Records. Well, thank you very much for the time to once again reconnect with you, David. This is always a treat to to speak with you, and it gives me a greater appreciation for the sound of music. Alan, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with David Chesky, an American pianist, composer, producer, arranger, and co-founder of the independent audiophile label, Chesky Records. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.